0: Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death, Affect the way we live our life. This week, our guest is Serge Pringle. He's a therapist, also the editor of the Active Pause podcast, and the author of the Proactive 12 Steps. Serge, how's it going?
1: Very good. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you about this topic.
0: Yeah, we're excited. Um, And thank you again for coming on. Uh, We only ask two questions for sure every week on this podcast, but the first one is just if you don't mind. Can you tell us uh, where you grew up, how old you are, and what generation, if any, you consider yourself a member of?
1: Okay. Um, So I grew up in different places, Um, much of it in France. And I came to uh, New York City, the New York City area, uh, where I've lived uh, all my adult life. I'm a member of the baby boomer generation. Uh, I'm 69 years old. Perfect. Awesome.
0: Cool. And so how old were you when you came to New York? About 18? Uh, 20. 20. Okay. And uh, when did you become a therapist?
1: I became a therapist about 30 years ago.
0: Cool. And so I'm curious just to kind of pick your brain about uh, therapy before we get into the topic of death. So I'm kind of curious, uh, as a therapist, how much does that change your uh, philosophy, like your overall philosophy of life?
1: So... As a therapist, um, I am very engaged with what it is that people think and feel about their lives, how they experience the challenges they have. It leads me to constantly be in uh, a dialogue with myself, so if you want that sense of life examined, uh, because... Seeing how people confront challenges or how where they get stuck is something that leads me to re-examine where I'm at. And so, uh, yeah, it does affect my, my view of life and my view of what it's like to be a human being because it's something that's not an academic topic. It's something that I see very much applying to real life day in and day out.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, Um, and while I am not a therapist, it's always been one of my preoccupations. I just love human psychology, and I love the field and the advances, and even the opposite of advances, but just kind of the way it it moves and meanders, Um, which kind of to that point, um, since this podcast is talking about death, you know, death is something a lot of people fear. I'm both assuming that and I've read things that support that. Um, I'm curious in your career as a therapist, would you say that the fear of death is like a pretty obvious and like common one or do you think it's actually
1: not? You know, I think the death and the difficulty of dealing with death is one of the essential characteristics of the human condition. Then how we deal with it is sometimes in a conscious way, in terms of orienting how we do uh, the decisions we make in terms of how we deal with our life or how we deal with it by avoiding the issue or or or. Uh, you know, but whether it's dealt with or not, whether it's something we are uh, explicitly scared of or not, um, is really something that is impossible to, to avoid. You know, that's a very essential part of being a human being. Like every living creature we face death, but unlike other living creatures, we have consciousness. So it's a, it's one of the central problems of human existence.
0: Wow, absolutely. And this is totally the exact uh, intersection of this podcast and where my brain goes. So I guess actually without further ado, I would love to hear your answer to the only other question we ask everyone, which is what do you think happens when you die? And I always make sure to be specific, not like when one dies or a person or like the universal idea of a human, but what do you think will actually happen to yourself?
1: Well, I will cease to exist in the form in which I'm accustomed to exist. I think that's something that we all can agree on. Then uh, we put different spins on it. And for some people, you know, the soul will continue to exist in some way or, or, or. Personally, I doubt that it's the case. I think it's more likely that uh, simply my life will end and that's it.
0: And so how does that affect you? Um, Is that depressing? Is that uplifting? Is it neither?
1: You know, I think it's mostly unfathomable. Um, depending on the moment, I can have different emotions about it. But essentially, I believe the human mind is really not equipped to really fathom this. Um, and we come up, you know with all kinds of um, theories and all kinds of myths and all kinds of stories about it. And uh, you know we have done that for just about as long as we have had the capacity to function as, as uh, you know, Homo sapiens. But basically, it is something that's so much bigger than what the mind evolved to do. Our mind essentially evolved to help us function as hunter-gatherers uh, and function uh, dealing with everyday realities of um, uh, how we're going to be fed, how we're going to avoid being somebody else's food, uh, how to find shelter, how to to plan some things that are relatively manageable to plan but we don't have the equipment to really deal with such large questions which is why you know we find we have such difficulty really staying with it. That's
0: fascinating. I have about 10 questions I want to ask you, and I'm not going to remember all of them. I try to take notes, but I think the most important one to ask right now would be, um, so if our human minds evolved to help us hunt and gather, but now we have like mental illness as a pretty widespread issue in modern culture, is that a bioevolutionary product? Like is the ability to be depressed, is the ability to have ennui something that like evolved in us? Or is that something that was always there? Do you think?
1: Well, we have, what evolved in us is the nervous system that enabled us to face the threats of the conditions under which we evolved. So, uh, you know, we basically developed to deal with very concrete threats, very concrete opportunities. Um, We actually changed the world in... A much faster time than evolution at the, the scale of evolution so we remained we remain we have the same you know nervous system that we had way back when but meanwhile we changed the world totally the world in which we function you know in civilization is vastly different and when i say in civilization i don't just mean in 2022 you no know, it goes back thousands of years, as we lived in civilizations for a few thousand years, which is a lot of time for us, but in very small time, you know, on the scale of evolution, we function, you know, for instance, what is very different is that in a state of nature, if there is a threat, uh, the nervous system responses of fight and flight are usually very appropriate but under a civilized situation, it's not something that you can use very often. Um, you know, If you have a problem with your boss at work, it's generally not a good idea to punch them in the face or to slam the door in one way. So as a result, we have a tremendous amount of pent up energy that is released by the evolutionary mechanism of fight or flight that simply cannot find an outlet. And so, you know, now you may wonder how it's related to your question about depression, for instance, anxiety. It's that all that energy has no place to go and has no place to uh, find an outlet for. And so basically it's running on empty. So just the same way as if you have your car and um, you don't have the gear on, but you keep pressing on the gas pedal, you know, and, uh, and so, or say you have the gas pedal on and you have the brake on, you know, any kind of analogy in which you're not moving, but there's tremendous amount of energy that is churning. And so that then, uh, you know, creates, you know, is in large part what we experience as anxiety or depression when, for instance, we can't use the energy And so there is that sense of the nervous system circuit, you know, shifts to the part that says all resistance is futile, you know, which in the state of nature happens when actually all resistance is futile, but to us happens pretty pretty often because, you know, we cannot use fight or flight. And we engage into that collapsed, you know, freeze circuit, which is a very natural circuit, which was a circuit of last resort. But that's how then we experience the world.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think you're you're making a great case, and uh, you know, I have no arguments here. And I definitely like your approach to everything. You you sound very um, calm and meditative and reflective of like all of these things. And so I'm kind of curious on a personal level: um, are you, are you religious? Were you ever religious? And and does that ever come into your life when you deal with these kind of things?
1: You know, I'm not religious. But I believe that the sense of um, the experience that people put under the name of God is an experience that is part of the human mind. So, um, you know, to, to take an agnostic position, I don't take a position on whether or not there is such a thing as God. But whether God created us to have the experience of God or whether we evolved to have the experience, I think it's part of being human to have an experience of something larger. And so uh, I believe it is quite possible to have that experience without having a set of dogma or a specific religion to apply it to. Wow,
0: that's that's really cool. Um, so if a patient comes to you And they're depressed, and your your hunch, your gut feeling, or just like the diagnosis you want to give, is that the religion itself is what's causing their depression. Is has that ever happened? And if it does happen, is there like an ethical concern on your part? Like how how much as a therapist are you supposed to quote unquote interfere
1: with that? So it's generally not a good idea to start arguing with a client about their beliefs because. Essentially, if you do that, you put yourself in a position where um, you are more um, attached in a way to your set of beliefs than to understanding the client and helping the client find a way out of their issues, you know, through their resources. So the general idea is to to help people, Uh, Understand better how they function and um, find what it is that gives them strength and ability to overcome challenges uh, so that they're able to find a way to overcome them in a way that is meaningful to them. So I have no problem, for instance, if a client is deeply religious, it's not my place to say, oh, by the way, I don't believe in religion.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, this is great. I'm really learning a lot about like what I'm interested in as far as the intersection of theology, philosophy, religion, and and of course, uh, psychology and psychiatry. Um, do you have concerns for the overall culture of the year 2022? What with like a pandemic, isolation, um, a lot of activism that points fingers and, you know, just all sorts of like things Uh, about mental illness and mental health. Are you concerned? Do you think this is like a great time for humanity that we're actually finally digging into this brain and and how it affects
1: us? I think it's a really very, very challenging time, very scary time. You know, we can find analogies at different periods uh, where, for instance, if you take the divisiveness, we can say, oh, well, Uh, We have been through a period of civil war. So, you know, this is not unusual. This has happened. It's not just the only time. Um, If you take the pandemic, you can say there has been periods of, uh, you know, other pandemics like the flu. There can be, there was, um, uh, you know, throughout history, there have been great epidemics of plague. You know, there's a Black Plague in the 14th century. So we can find ways in which things have happened before, Um, you know, the possible end of the world as we know it through climate change is a little bit more chancy to find, uh, you know, some other circumstances to it. But there have been plenty of civilizations that died uh, through basically ignoring environmental constraints. Uh, And so uh, each, each one of these cases, we can say, We've been, you know, as a species, we've been there before. However, there is a very, you know, daunting reality that this time may be for good. You know, that um, um, we may be uh, figuring out, you know, getting into a time where, where we don't have the answers as a species, as a whole, as a, as a, as a you know, as humanity, um, that we are not able to to confront, you know, the challenges, and I don't know, it is scary.
0: Yeah, and then, so kind of along those lines, because I did ask you about fear, and I asked you about the fear of death, and then I asked you about your opinion of what happens when you die, so given your admitted opinion of when you die, which is that the form will cease to exist, does it really matter, both to you, and do you think in, a, in an existential sense, does it matter if our civilization kills itself off, or even if it, you know, just perishes by a different means, Does it? does any of this matter, do you think?
1: You know, the, uh, many people who are religious feel that the only way to experience meaning is if you believe in something transcendent and that meaning is something that's given to you by God. And my experience is that meaning is something that we have, you know, as a human being. It's not related to, um, you know, whether or not there is a God giving meaning. So. Uh personally, I feel very affected by the idea that the world may be in a bad place. You know, it's not about, you know, after me, I don't care. Um, I mean, I care, for instance, about the people I love and who will, you know, survive me. Uh, but I care about people in general. I think that's a, that's a function of being human.
0: I, this is to me very related. It might seem like a little bit of a jump to you. But since you did grow up in France and then you moved to America when you were 20, oh, and I think I should mention that I was an English language teacher to um, people from other countries for about seven or eight years. So I spent a lot of time talking about cross-cultural communication, and I taught a lot of French people as well as other people from different parts of Europe and the rest of the world. Um, So I'm curious, you spent five-sevenths of your life in America and two-sevenths in France. So I would consider you somewhat of an expert on both cultures. Do you think... um, Culturally speaking that either culture has a leg up or a leg down on the other one when it comes to death Like do you think they view death differently?
1: No, I mean I think people individually people view death differently Uh, Some cultures of course view death differently. I could probably if I spend some time Find some differences between the way French people and Americans view death. I might be able to find differences but I think that the differences are less important than the fact that it is a, it is a daunting fact of life um, that we try to make sense of in one way or another. And that a large part of culture is to to find a way to make sense of that. you know. And some of the other things, the big things we try to make sense of is how we are both intelligent in a, you know, in a, in a traditional sense, which means cognitive, logical, whatever, uh, conscious, but also have characteristics of an animal nature, you know, if you want to use that dichotomy. So these are kind of big things that essentially no culture has ever fully integrated. We come to ways to, to deal with it or to avoid the issue. But these are things that are really difficult to to really find a a simple resolution to. And so they stay as some of the big unknowns over which the culture is is kind of dancing around.
0: Got it. Wow, that's really interesting. And thank you. Um, I love the way you answer questions. You just have a very, this is my opinion, but also matter of fact and calm approach to answering questions. So I just want to let you know I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And... uh, I guess my next question is kind of back to the personal level, but I'm I'm really interested in picking your brain because you have thirty years of experience with different clients. I'm curious, do you think the average person is more upset when they're given a diagnosis about themselves that they're gonna die, or when they learn that someone they love, like a parent, a child, or a spouse, is gonna die? Which do you think affects the average person more?
1: That would be such a difficult question to answer. I have seen people very affected about their own death, very affected about the death of others, but very affected about their own death, sometimes in the sense not so much for them, but about the impact it has on others. Um, So I I would avoid having a big generalization there, but put it more, again, in that context of this is way beyond what our equipment, you know, is really able to process.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I i appreciate your answer. I think I want to ask like a sub-question to it, which is um when a person is in either situation, what is your best advice? So I don't know if you want to answer the same advice for both or if you want to treat them separately.
1: So I would I would first of all very much try to avoid any tendency that I might have toward giving advice. And um, you know, you give advice when you've been there. And um, and and I haven't been in the situation of dying. Um, and in terms of close people, you know, um, no two situations are alike. And so um, so it's really, I think, a situation that calls for a sense of having some humility about not really understanding, possibly understanding what the other person is going through and what it means to them and putting more of our effort in trying to be present with them, in trying to give them space to to basically let themselves feel what is happening and let them come up with what it means to them as opposed to giving advice.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, So I'm curious, uh, going to your personal life and your experience as a therapist, what is your greatest success story? Um, What's something that you'd like to share with our audience as far as like a time you worked with a client and you just felt a tremendous amount of success?
1: So, you know, um, it's really Something that happens, I don't think it's one case, you know, because it it comes with the same intensity for me, whether it's something that is objectively a big change or something that is less important, you know, in terms of its manifestations, in terms of what you would grade objectively as saying, oh wow, this is an enormous change, or this is a small change. But what feels incredibly satisfying is every time. I see a client who's able to notice how they have been essentially um, on a track toward repeating coping mechanisms, and that the veil starts to lift, and they're able to not just understand but also practice doing something a little bit different, and have a sense of oh. Um, I'm experiencing myself as a little bit larger than I used to because now my repertoire is something more than I used to think I I did, you know, so that sense of, um, you know, like the fog lifting, the eyes opening up, perspectives becoming bigger, that sense of changing is something that I find is really so awesome that, uh, it is the reward. I think that makes me as a therapist keep doing what I do because it's just wonderful when it happens.
0: That was a very profound answer. Thank you. I'm such a pleasure to hear that. Um, and so I actually, I think the most natural question I'd want to ask you is what has been your greatest, um, shift in perspective? Like, so you spoke about how witnessing it in another is so wonderful. What, what do you think has been your greatest one?
1: So to me, it's similar, you know, it's, um, um, it's not you know, oh, there is one thing because that is a change that is so quote important compared to others, but every time I catch myself, you know in that moment of um being able to notice uh you know the urge the urge to follow in an established pattern and to give myself the chance to. Uh, stop on my tracks and see another possibility and to actually do it, you know, and, uh, and I appreciate it all the more that I have also the experience of how, uh, you know, it's easy for me as well as any other human being, but certainly me being no exception, to keep coming back to old patterns and to coping mechanisms. And so whenever, you know, I don't take it for granted that these things you know, are so easy to happen or that they continue automatically. So I'm very grateful when I see myself actually very actively in the process of not falling into the old pattern.
0: That's cool, that's really cool. Um, yeah, and I could definitely identify with that answer a lot. Um, we're, we're running out of time here, but I do wanna ask you to describe or talk about your book, please. Um, it's called The Proactive 12 Steps, A Mindful Program for Lasting Change. I'm curious what it's about and why you wrote it and, you know, uh, please let our audience know.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have a tremendous respect for the 12 Steps programs, you know, AA and other similar programs for addiction uh, because as a therapist, I'm very interested in growth and I'm very interested in fostering growth, uh, you know, outside of therapy, not just in therapy. And what happens when people follow a path that helps them overcome what I described you know the tendency to go to a coping mechanism as opposed to doing something that is more functional. So I have over the years really paid a lot of attention to what happens in the 12 steps and think of it as something that's not just good for people who suffer from addiction but essentially for all of us who deal with unfinished business with uh, you know with basically the, the You know, all the stuff in life that leaves us wounded and, uh, and keeps us coming back, you know, to, um, to really um, being less able to confront the challenges of life. And so what I have done is describe this path, follow generally the sense of the, the, the 12 steps of AA, but describe it in a way that's much, much more precise, much more mindful, much more proactive in order to outline what it is to do uh, that helps you deal with this kind of stuckness and overcome it and able to do lasting change. Yeah.
0: That's great. That's really cool. And it's kind of funny to me because we were talking about religion and everything else and AA is famously religious to some people and famously secretly religious to others.
1: That's one of the, that's one of the points in the book is actually, Um, I do not, you know, I think what happens is, um, the notion of God, uh, prevents people from seeing the, really how much the work that's involved is personal work. So, you know, and, and I think ultimately AA, you know, with all this language of God, you know, if AA was only founded on the idea of God, they would say, pray and don't do anything else and you'll be okay. But actually, the reason there's 12 steps is because, you know, uh, the notion of God maybe gives people a sense that God is going to do all the work, but they have to do the work in order to get better. And so by avoiding talking about God and talking about the specifics that you have to what you have to do, that's why I call it the proactive 12 steps, because I want to really focus people on here's what you need to do. And when you do it, then you'll see the growth. It's not about praying or it's not about, you know, letting it happen to you. It's not a mystical process. It's a process of mindful and proactive change.
0: Wow. That's really cool. And I can hear the passion in your answers. So it's, it's awesome to hear that you've spent so much time. You've done, you know, what I consider field work and you've written this awesome book. Um, so I, I definitely am appreciative of what you're doing for people and for humanity. Um, and so on that note, I always give my guests the last, uh, question, which is just kind of, what do you want to say to people? You know, this is a wide audience of different varied people, so you have the floor.
1: So what I want to tell people is, um, you know, the two words, active pause, that, you know, the process to me about overcoming the difficulties, as I've described in the process of the proactive 12 steps, but also uh, of dealing with reactivity, dealing with strong fears, including the fear of death and the, uh, you know, the the older question that paralyzes us, is really to train ourselves to take an active pause. That is to, you know, stop on our track and give ourselves a chance to engage our curiosity, to see things a little bit differently, to feel the fear, to feel the pressure, to feel what would normally, you know, push us to go into the default mode, into doing what we're accustomed to doing, but to hold it just a little bit to give ourselves a chance to see something a little bit different. And, and so I wanna encourage people to do that and just take take a minute a day, take a minute in the morning and a minute in the, in the evening. Just take a moment where you just pause and you give yourself a chance to see what happens when you take that moment of pause and you give yourself a chance to see what's really happening inside and how something new might be emerging.
0: Wow, that was awesome. That was, that was deep and profound, uh, which I've come to kind of expect from your answers. So thank you again, Serge Pringle, for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Uh, to our audience, please check the notes for the podcast, and you'll see a link to uh, his stuff and his book and all that. And again, to everyone listening at home, uh, the number one way to support our podcast is just to subscribe. So uh, thank you to those of you who have, and thank you to those of you who will. And as always, my name is Mike Oppenheim. This is the Coffin Talk podcast, and we will see you soon.